You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part four of a series in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We'll pause our reading there after verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, you really need to listen to the last episode to understand uh, these words of Paul fully, or at least to read 2 Corinthians 3. Because in 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul talks about the new covenant ministry that has been entrusted to him and to the other apostles, and by extension also to those who preach the gospel today, uh, and in a sense to all Christians as we share the gospel with other people. That new covenant ministry is a, a ministry of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God removes the veil that prevents people from seeing Christ. And, and as he does that, he transforms people from one glory to another, one degree of glory to another. And I suggested in the last episode that that degrees of glory could apply to Christians, that we grow into Christ-likeness by at gazing on Jesus and the spirit changes us but of course the first instance of that is conversion in 2 Corinthians 3 there is a glory that comes with the old covenant that the people of Israel could see shining on the face of Moses but Paul says that there is a veil that present, prevents people from seeing the full glory of Christ when they read the old covenant when they read Moses there is a veil on their hearts, he says. He's talking about Israelites who have not turned to Jesus. And clearly here in chapter uh, four, that's what's in view. He talks about unbelievers and he talks about unbelievers who are blind. They are blinded by the God of this world. There is a spiritual reality that Satan is blinding the eyes of people so that they cannot see Jesus. It's not that they can't understand the words of the gospel as they are preached, but they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. They can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of God, of Christ rather, who is the image of God. But there is a work that God does of shining light into hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Verse 6 of chapter 4. In other words, there is a work of new creation. Notice that God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Salvation is 
new creation. That's how Paul describes it later in 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Well, that new creation work is a work of the Spirit of God. The gospel is preached and God the Spirit brings life into the light of that person, shines the light of the gospel, breaks through the darkness and deception of Satan. And as that person believes in Jesus, they are transformed by the Spirit of God, given new life. The gospel is powerful. And the power of the gospel is not in the preacher. That's what Paul said in chapter three. We are not competent. We are not sufficient. The gospel is sufficient. Jesus is sufficient. The spirit of God is sufficient. Our hope, our power, if you are a minister, if you are a servant of God, a preacher, is not in our ability to preach cleverly. It's not in our persuasive words or our powers of rhetoric. It is in the Spirit of God. The gospel itself contains the light that the Spirit needs to shine into hearts. Now, the outcome of preaching, therefore, is between God and the person. There is a work of Satan in trying to snatch away the seed and destroy the, prevent the work of God in that person's life. There is a work of the Spirit of God. We are not responsible for the consequences. So what are we responsible for? Well, verses 1 and 2 describe that. First of all, we are responsible not to lose heart. Paul said it back in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians that there was a point in his ministry of the affliction because of the opposition he faced where he felt like felt despair. He felt the sentence of death. He despaired of life itself. He felt like giving up utterly. But he did not let himself lose heart. Why? Because this ministry was a gift of God's mercy. God had given him this privilege of preaching the gospel mercifully, graciously given that to him. And so Paul is saying in response to that, in response to this grace gift of God, we will not lose heart. I won't give up. I will keep on trusting. I think knowing that the results of the gospel are a spiritual reality, it's not about our technique that makes it effective, then that is also helpful in not losing heart, isn't it? How easily we would lose heart if we thought it didn't work because I didn't do it right. But we don't lose heart. We know that the gospel is powerful. We know that God is at work. We know that the results are up to him. But not only do we not lose heart, we think about the way we communicate. And that's what Paul says in verse two. He says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We don't use cunning and we don't tamper with God's word. That's really important. We are not to distort the gospel, to twist it, to try and make it more palatable to people, more appealing to them. That, that would be wrong. In fact, to do that, we would empty the gospel of its power. I think we need to be very careful about this in the modern age because there is a lot of preaching that claims to be gospel or Christian preaching that is really just preaching a kind of fuzzy love. God loves you. God is for you. God wants to bless you. There's nothing God won't do for you. There's no mountain he won't tear down, no valley he won't fill up to come after you. God is utterly for you. But that's not the gospel. 
The gospel tells people the reality of their sin, just as the law did. The gospel doesn't dodge that. The gospel doesn't pretend that we are nice people, just in need of a little bit of help from God, that we're broken people, just in need of being stuck back together with some super glue and a bit of gold. The gospel doesn't tell us that we are broken, crushed people who just need comfort and, and encouragement and be kinder to ourselves. The gospel tells us that we are sinners, rebels against a holy God, that we turned our backs on him. We alienated ourselves from him. We brought upon ourselves the sentence of death. We deserve God's judgment for our sin. Yes, we are messed up in all sorts of ways by other people and their actions and by the world that we live in, which is fallen from the world that God created. But we are guilty before God. And as the gospel reveals our sin to us and then presents Jesus to us as the saviour from our sins, that's a wonderfully good message. It's a message that offends many when you start to talk about realities like sin. They don't want to think of themselves as being sinners. But until they do, until they understand that they are sinners and they need a saviour and they cannot save themselves, there is no hope of salvation. So it worries me when I hear what are supposed to be gospel presentations, presentations of Christian truth to non-Christians when they don't deal with the issue of sin. Not so much concerned about the word sin, but if they never help the person to understand that they have done wrong, that they are guilty, that they need forgiveness, then it's not the gospel. If it never helps a person to stand accountable before God, then there is no hope within that. If it doesn't present Jesus as a sacrifice for sins, then there is no salvation to be had. We mustn't distort or twist the word of God. We mustn't use manipulative techniques. Again, another flaw in preaching, even sometimes when it does talk realistically about sin, is that, you know, you use techniques like the volume and the pitch and the pace. Now, that's natural when we're communicating, but they're used to excess or lighting and music. That is meant to move the emotions and stir people up to make an emotional response. The gospel doesn't need those things. The power to bring salvation, the light, is in the truth of the gospel. It is in the person of Jesus as he is presented to sinners. We don't need to use manipulation. We must not use manipulation because a response that is purely emotional with no commitment of the will is not a saving response. Whipping people up into a frenzy or stirring people up into a position where they'll say almost anything uh, simply to please you or to try and alleviate this, the, the emotional turmoil that they're experiencing rather than presenting Jesus to them and asking them to respond to him as Saviour and Lord. That, that's not what we should be about. We don't manipulate, we don't twist, we don't use cunning, we don't tamper with God's word. What do we do? He says, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I love the way Paul puts that. That little statement has become a key statement for me 
in some of my ministry, especially when I'm dealing with complex issues where sin is involved, to do with sex and sexuality and to do with uh, abortion, for example. I don't want to distort the truth. I have to be prepared to name sin as sin. I want to do that sensitively. I want to do that carefully. I want to make it clear what is and what isn't a sin. But I am captive to the word of God. I must speak in the sight of God. And therefore I must state the truth as he has revealed it. If I don't do that, it's God that I will answer to. Paul will talk about that in the next chapter that we have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's to him that I will give account and therefore I must not distort the truth. I must present it clearly but also I commend myself to people's conscience. I like that again because as we've read this passage it sounds like salvation is entirely a work of the spirit but it's also a work, a response rather to the truth, not a work, not something people do God saves, but there is a response that must come in the human heart, the conscience that recognises sin and confesses it to God and embraces the need for God's forgiveness. You see, if I don't present the truth to people, I am dishonouring God and I will answer to, answer to Christ for that. But I am also not helping people because I'm not commending God's truth to their conscience. I'm leaving them with the impression that sin is not sin, that they're okay with God. So I must be plain and clear as I present God's truth. That doesn't mean brash and unloving, harsh and lacking in gentleness. I can be gentle, loving, patient, but I must be clear. Let's read on then in 2 Corinthians 4 from verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who, are who, we who live are always being given over to death. For Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence for it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We'll end our reading there at the end of 2 Corinthians 4, that's verse 18.
So Paul has talked about the ministry that has been entrusted to him, the glorious truth of the gospel, the light that God has shone in our hearts, which is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse six, that is treasure. The life of God, the light of God, the presence of the spirit of God, the truth of who Jesus is, the transformation into his likeness that the spirit brings as we gaze on Jesus which Paul talked about in chapter three. This is treasure, but it's carried in jars of clay. And Paul's speaking there about the body, the human body. In uh, Genesis two, it talks about God fashioning the first human body, Adam's body, out of clay, out of mud. And our bodies are made of the stuff of the earth. They are frail, they are weak. They are jars of clay. Of course, a clay jar can be broken, but it's suitable for holding treasure. It doesn't look glorious on the outside, but the treasure is within. Now, that's, of course, true of the Christian, isn't it? I mean, you don't look at a Christian and suddenly look at their body and think, oh, their face is shining the way Moses' face shone, uh, as we saw in the last episode. You, you, you don't look at them and suddenly say, oh, because they're now a Christian, their body is somehow more beautiful than anybody else's, more perfect more free from disease. There are false teachings that go around that say that a Christian who has faith in God will be free of all disease. That's simply wrong because that freedom from disease is not for now. It is for resurrection. Paul talks about that in this passage. He says that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us. Why would you need resurrection if your body was perfected now? And you can read this in Romans 8 as well, a very similar passage where it talks about the suffering that we experience now as being uh, birth pangs, the birth pangs of creation, longing for the revelation of the children of God in glory when we will be shown to be perfectly like Jesus. That's what's coming. Resurrection. The, the, the body itself made perfect, a new body that is not subject to decay or to death, that can live eternally with God in his new creation. But in the meantime, we live by faith. We don't live by sight. We don't look to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. We live for the eternal kingdom of God that will be revealed in future. We don't see Jesus in person now. We see him through the preaching of the gospel as the spirit reveals him to our hearts. The things that are seen are transient, Paul says, this physical world that we live in. But the things that are unseen are eternal. The treasure is what will last the treasure within. Our outer self, our body, is wasting away. Uh, I passed my physical peak many years ago in my early or mid-twenties, I think, is when your body starts to decline from its peak. Uh, And I'm sure many of you listening are the same. So I can't deny that this body is wasting away and one day it will die. And it will decay in the ground. But my inner self, my spirit, my soul is being renewed day by day. 
and it will one day live in a resurrection body by the way the the future is not living disembodied floating around in a cloud uh, that's not what the bible teaches it's not what paul teaches here he says resurrection is coming he who raised jesus will raise us and will bring us into his presence but in the meantime god has placed treasure in these jars of clay the treasure of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, the treasure of the Spirit of God who makes that life in us, the likeness of Jesus, the transformation that we experience into his character. And so when we face affliction, we can stand up under it. We are not crushed. We are perplexed but not driven to despair, verse 8. We are persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. What beautiful contrast. Back in chapter 1, Paul talked about the affliction that he had experienced, particularly in Asia. And he talked about how God delivered him and would deliver him again, how his faith, his trust was in God to do that. He talked to about the comfort that God brings in our affliction so that we can comfort others. That's part of the treasure, isn't it? But there he said that they had entrusted themselves to God who raises the dead. And you see that theme being picked up here again. And I say it again because although Paul said God will deliver us, the deliverance is not necessarily in this life. Paul knew God's deliverance many times. When people opposed him and tried to kill him or arrest him, God released him from prison in Philippi. God um, uh, brought him, sustained him through a stoning when he, he could have died. Uh, and instead, uh, he was able to get up and walk out of the city when he was left for dead. God could deliver him in all sorts of ways. But Paul is not saying that God will always deliver us from suffering in this life and from opposition. There are faithful Christians who have died for their testimony to Jesus. And every faithful Christian over the generations eventually has died, sometimes because of hostility for their faith, sometimes because of disease and sickness and old age. Christians are not immune to these things. Our bodies are jars of clay. The ultimate deliverance that God will bring and does promise that we can be sure of is through resurrection. That's what Paul is saying here. But in the meantime, we can stand up under opposition. We can be perplexed and we will be. Part of the opposition that Paul faced, I said this in previous episodes, is the fact that there were other people who preached the gospel out of rivalry, as he puts it in Philippians or in Corinthians. These people who were uh, claiming to be super apostles, who, who claimed to be strong, the discouragement that that brought, the betrayal that that was to Paul. He could have despaired, but he didn't. He was perplexed. He couldn't figure it out. He couldn't understand it. It was a puzzle to him how others could behave that way, but he was not despairing. He was persecuted, but not forsaken by God, struck down, but not destroyed. You see, the treasure that is in us, the life of Christ that is in us by the Spirit of God, the likeness of Christ that the Spirit is growing and producing in us, cannot be destroyed by anyone else. We 
carry in in ourselves this treasure. We are being renewed inwardly. God provides grace for each day. So we carry round in our bodies, verse 10, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested. In our weakness, as Paul will say later on, God's strength is made perfect. It is in our weakness that people see the strength of God. That they see that this person is no superhuman, no superhero, not free from all of the confusion and opposition and affliction and suffering that every Christian, every person experiences. No, this person, the only thing that makes them different is the extraordinary, supernatural work of God in their lives, in their inner being. That's where the strength lies. And so... We are given over to death for Jesus' sake, but the life of Jesus is seen in us. And through that, he says, verse 12, death is at work in us, but life in you. Through the ministry of the new covenant that he described in chapter 3, through the preaching of the word that he described at the beginning of this chapter, that is how life is brought to them. And it is brought not, not because Paul is strong, and free from suffering, but in his weakness, in his suffering, as God comforts him through the word and the presence of the Spirit, God strengthens him to make known to others Christ, even through affliction. That's the reality of the Christian life. So don't seek a trouble-free life as a Christian, a sickness or affliction-free life. No, walk with Christ and ask God to renew you in your inner self. Gaze often on Jesus in the gospel word of, of life, in the word of scripture. Look at Jesus. Allow the spirit of God to change you into his likeness and allow the fruit that he produces to be seen in you, pouring out in blessing to others. Because as you do that and as you proclaim Jesus to them, God will bring life to them through you. You will outwardly waste away, whether it's through opposition to the gospel or simply through aging in time. But you can be inwardly renewed. And there's a wonderful word of hope in that for an older person, if you're listening. Even though your body feels frail, even though your strength is going, inwardly you can be renewed if you gaze on Jesus and resurrection is coming. Amen.